and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about loot boxes. Are they a fun way to motivate players, or are developers using them to loot your wallet? To help me discuss why loot boxes are important to video games is the man who got that one item you really wanted on his very first try, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Uh, what's up, Steve? Jared, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear sorry. me? Yeah, I, hold on. I'm just, uh, let me complete this purchase. <laughs> let me, and bot. Uh, sorry, yeah, I just uh, get, got some more crates for uh, Players Unknown's uh, Battlegrounds. No! Yeah, I, yeah, I gotta finish <laughs> this. Doing? I gotta finish this uh, costume. I gotta get my my battle royale costume all set here. Uh, how are you? How are you doing? Buying anything cool lately? Uh, not not uh, loot box related, but I did manage to get my hand on one of those um, the SNES pre orders. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Oh, I, yeah. You texted me right, right when those pre orders went up, and then I think that was like maybe five ten minutes after they had gone live on uh, Best Buy's website, and they were all gone by the time I got to it, so. Yeah, man, it's it's crazy how quick that stuff happens, man. You gotta be, like, on top of it. And I'm happy that I, you were able to, you, you secured yours first before telling me about it. <laughs> well, yeah, man, it's, it's the <laughs> I'm not judging. Scar- it's scarcity, man. There's only no, so many to go around. I mean, out of the five that they released, I'm glad that you got one. <laughs> and I'm planning on stashing it away till Griffin's old enough to appreciate it and then giving it to him for, like, his fifth birthday or something. That'd be cool. So, um, so yeah, so hopefully uh, people feel good about knowing that I've got a SNES stuck in a closet somewhere. <laughs> Are you going to put it in a box? And give it to him like a loot box? That's a, mm. that's a really good mm. transition, Jared. Mm. And segue. <laughs> we are, dude, we are bad at podcasting. Or the best. Or, or maybe the, weirdly, maybe the best. But, Jared's uh, still out. <laughs> now, continuing our trend of having guests that are uh, way more qualified to talk about video games than we are we have a doctor of psychology he's the host of psychology of video games podcast and author of the book getting gamers please welcome to the show an amazing guest jamie madigan jamie how you doing man good hey thanks guys thanks for having me on so of course, i yeah thank you for i was us. told that if i came on there would be keys uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be we, tell that, we tell that to, to all our guests. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they'll be in your Steam inventory. Uh, they're they're coming. Okay, as, yeah. as a card in the mail, actually. Nice. Otherwise, I'll just That's, borrow that SNES classic. You know. Yeah. There you go. At some point. Yeah. Oh, thanks I'm for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm sorry to inform you. There are no keys, and also <laughs> the uh, the cake that we promised is also a lie. Yeah. Well, I'm used to that by now. Nice throwback. <laughs> Making it about video games, Jared. Got to keep it on topic here. Now, Jamie, um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself um, and a little bit about your uh, the website you started and, and what your goal is with that. Uh, sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, I run the the website psychologyofgames.com, which has got a podcast that goes along with it and uh, a book that I put out a while back. And my, uh, my mission in life is kind of to popularize the application of psychology to designing games, understanding how games are marketed, and understanding why gamers do what we do when we play games. So those are kind of the three things that I try to look at and dip into the the psychology literature, both that is specifically about video games, so people who are doing research about games and uh, related media, and then also just sort of general theories and principles about psychology and social psychology and the psychology of decision-making and 
all those other good things and seeing how that can be applied to um, why games are made how they are, why we do what we do, and, and how games are marketed and sold the way that they are. So it's a lot of fun stuff. Uh, I have a background in psychology, a PhD in psychology. Uh, my day job, I am an industrial organizational psychologist. Uh, and then the psychology game stuff I do for fun on the side. So yeah, I've been doing Great it one. since about 2009 at this point. So it's been a while. So, so tell us, Jimmy, why are games? Oh, how, ga- <laughs> how game? What game? How, how, how'd you game? <laughs> how'd you game? No, now, what, what prompted you to combine uh, your appreciation of video games with uh, your background in psychology? Was there like a specific moment or a specific game where you said, yeah. oh, you know, I'm going to start putting these two things together? Not like conversion on the road to Damascus or anything, but yeah, <clears throat> it was just about in 2009, I was looking for a new blogging project. You know, I, I always just kind of like to blog and write for fun. And I had been reading a lot of books about the psychology of decision-making and behavioral economics, which looks at like, how do people make decision in real world circumstances, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to how they make them like in a laboratory or when they're being completely hundred percent rational, like a computer would. And I just started picking up a lot of things about, you know, human biases and cognitive decision-making and and ways that our brains work. And I kept thinking like, wow, this sort of explains why this game design trope uh, keeps showing up, for example, or why it works or why it's appealing. And this sort of explains why the price structure for this MMO is the way it is and the way it's being marketed. And I just thought like somebody should write, oh, somebody should write about this. Somebody should, you know, kind of bring this to the masses, put it out there and decided to take that on myself and threw up a, a blog and the domain psychology games was somehow available. So I snagged that and <laughs> posted like, uh, you know, five articles that I just kind of banged out off the top of my head based on what I was reading at the time. And they attracted an audience. And here it is several years later, uh, kind of expanded and keep doing the articles and podcast and book and guest speaking and coming on awesome podcasts like this to, to talk with you guys about games. Uh, so yeah, just kind of keep doing it. A lot of game developers, I think, are interested in the psychology of games because it has, you know, suggestions yeah. suggestions for things to experiment with in game design. Yeah, I think we'll I think we'll get into that for sure in this episode. Yeah, and then uh, as I kind of alluded to a minute ago, there's a growing number of academics who are who grew up with video games and are interested in the same kind of questions that I am. But they're the ones who are actually out there doing the research and and you know collecting data and doing good scientific work. And my job is, you know, I know how to do that. I have, you know, the degree and the, and the background to understand the work that they're putting out. But uh, my job is really just to kind of popularize it and write about it and try to bring it to a wider audience. So you're not, you're not actively involved in any ongoing studies or anything related no. to no. the crossover? No. Haven't done that since I graduated. Uh, now, is there like an area of, I guess, the, the crossover between psychology and video games that you think needs to be explored further or looked into more things like maybe violence or addiction or social interactions. Is there like one area you see sort of a a lack of research being done that you'd like to see more in? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of an interesting question because the hot topic button, the hot button topics right now are the ones that you just mentioned, uh, violence and the effects of violent media and violent video games. And this idea of addiction to, to games, especially online uh, multiplayer games or online games. And that is where there's a lot of heat. That's where there's a lot of 
um, grant money being thrown around for people to study these things. It's where, uh, you know, producers are putting together talk shows or topic, you know, episodes of talk shows to discuss or special episodes of a magazine or, or whatever. Um, so violence and addiction are the popular topics. And I think it's great that those are being studied, right? So, you know, it's good to try to figure these things out, but I think that they are a little bit overrepresented in terms of how much attention they're getting. And there are sorts of other things that, that could be getting attention and, and violence and aggression are really difficult to do good science on as well. Uh, you know, it's have you played Hellblade yet? No, are you familiar that, with it. That's the team ninja game, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like the very first credit in the opening of the game is from the psychologist that they consulted with to make the game. And uh, I'm not too far into it yet. And obviously, we're not going to we're not going to go into spoilers on this. But mm-hmm. um, I'm really happy to see someone tackle things like mental illness in, in the in the context of a video game. I think that's that's really cool, too. Yeah. Yeah. From what I understand, that game deals with a specific mental illness and they the people who made it kind of wanted to make sure that they got it right factually and sort of treated it with the right amount of uh, respect and accuracy that it deserves. So I'm sure that it, it sounds like a group of psychologists were employed as consultants there to help make sure that happened. Now, is that a trend that you're seeing more? Cause I've heard about companies like, uh, like Bungie, they'll bring in psychologists to try to figure out how to sort of maximize player retention. Is that, is that mm-hmm. something that you see a lot or is that something that you've personally like maybe even been offered a position in? Uh, yeah, it is. It's a growing trend. And I've done a little bit of work and I've known people who have pursued uh, jobs in doing that, working internally for gaming companies uh, or consulting directly for gaming companies to do things like uh, increase retention, um, manage communities and figure out ways for people to get along, which is kind of one of the areas that I think needs to be studied more. Uh, you know, the ideas around toxic behavior and mm-hmm. and sportsmanship and that type of stuff. And I've been playing I've been playing a lot of Overwatch lately, so I yeah. I, I agree with you one hundred percent. I think Overwatch actually has one of the better communities, though it's by no means it does. perfect. It does. Yeah. Um so yeah, there are a lot of psychologists that are working in there. A lot of times they take on roles in like data science and data management since they often have the skills needed to do that sort of stuff. And they do a lot of uh, UIX or user interface experience design and testing as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to see it whenever you know somebody is doing that kind of work and they're doing it uh, scientifically and, and in a very good, solid way. Yeah. Now let's get this out of the way uh, early on in this episode. How many papers have you written about the psychology of uh, people who invert their y-axis and how they're oh, superior God. to all other gamers. That's what I want to know. I have to. We kind of have an ongoing thing on this show where we we've been asking all our guests if they invert their y-axis, yeah. and so far, I mean, Jared and I do both invert our y-axis, but every single one of our guests plays with the standard controls. Well, I'm here to break that pattern because I am a proud inverter. I'll yeah, the y-axis. we did it. <laughs> You did it, guys. We did it. We We got one. (laughs) Okay, so uh, we can wrap this podcast up now. (laughs) Great. Thanks for having me on. Series series is done. Up is Mm -hmm. down. Down is up. Good run. Very Uh, cool. You're our our first one. See, I I kind of expected that the split would be a little bit more uh, like a quarter of the people, a quarter of our guests would be inverted like us. But it's been like a lot more people play standard than I had expected. Yeah. Yeah, for a long time, my uh, my daughter was sharing my uh, 
Battle.net, my Blizzard account, to play Overwatch. And she mm-hmm. would go in there and change the the Axis inversion. And I was like, no, this, this <laughs> has to stop. If you do this again, you're grounded. I'm going to change the password on the computer. The I'm doors gonna... fly open in, in the <laughs> match, right. and then you're just like, no, again. What are you doing in that room by yourself? Are you inverting the Y axis again? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that that's how I converted her. I essentially forced her to do it. So there's at least one more in the world. So that's weird because my theory was also that it was not something that you could sort of learn. It was just sort of like an, an innate thing. But you found that your daughter was able to make the switch to inverted controls yeah, based it was, on your input? it was pretty early on. And I think she just was too lazy to go back and change it back. So she learned it. Got to raise them right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, let's move into talking about our uh, our topic for today, which is loot boxes. We typically start out talking a little bit about the history of loot boxes. So, Jared, you want to jump into that? Sure, yeah. Um, like most of our topics, loot boxes have an origin uh, outside of video games. Uh, of course, card games have been around since the like early like the ninth century, all the way back to um, like the Tang Dynasty in China, they were making cards on on like dominoes, you know, just on slabs and playing cards like that. The first CCG was obviously it came out in 1993. Steve, you know this Magic: The Gathering. Uh, oh yeah, those guys were like, I wonder how we could just print money, and they they made a game where you know you open up a pack, you don't know what's going to be in it, and hopefully you get the the cards that you want to make your deck. And yeah, it's uh, funny, like talking about specifically about cards, cards, um, you know, these ideas of like randomized cards in a pack actually goes back to the late 1800s when cigarette companies were putting trading cards <laughs> into cigarette packs, which is kind of crazy to think about today, right? Like these cigarette companies are including essentially toys in their cigarettes, which they didn't have the the same kinds of regulations we do today. I'm sure you know a five year old kid could go buy a, a pack of cigarettes, but I think today if a cigarette company did that, they would get lit up. I wonder if like in in 20 years people are going to be looking at these blind loot boxes that we're going to get into and be like, well, man, there's like gambling for kids. Like, what is yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's it, definitely crossed my mind. You know, in thinking about these, the you know, this topic historically that same exact thought crossed my mind is like, what, how are we going to feel about the, you know, the design of games and the, the behaviors that we allowed people to engage in, you know, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, hundred years from now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's already looks gross today. So I, I can't <laughs> imagine that, you know, we're going to look back on this as an enlightenment period as no. far as, as that kind of thing go. Uh, but as far as like popular culture, uh, Team Fortress Two kind of kicked this off with their their crate drops and uh, their key system. So I, I I didn't play a whole lot of Team Fortress. Did the crates just drop randomly? Yeah, you, they did. You guys know? Okay, yeah, yeah. And you, you had to like, you had them, buy the show keys. up in your inventory. Yeah, and then you had to buy the key either off once they. Well, yeah, I guess it was the Manco store that they eventually uh, introduced where you could get the keys. It's, Right about this time that Valve stopped making video games, weirdly <laughs> yeah. enough. Now they <laughs> got like, a card oh, game we... coming, you guys. Speaking Great. of cards. Yeah, Dota 2. Card game. Great. Okay. <laughs> More and microtransactions. Team... team Fortress 2 is interesting because it originally launched as like a game that you, you paid for and then you got items essentially for free in the game. Yeah. You would unlock, you know, you'd, you'd get hats and, and weapons and stuff that were unlocked in, in the game. And then... Um, 
in 2010, they were starting to prepare to make the transition over to free-to-play. And part of that was implementing this idea of loot boxes, which maybe had existed in some games beforehand, but not on the scale that they were implementing them in Team Fortress 2. So this was really the one of the first video games that used loot boxes as the primary way to generate funds from their game. And then they introduced it in 2010, and then the game went free-to-play in 2011. Uh, as part of that initiative and that's that's where it all started man and now like you, you can't find a game that doesn't have some sort of microtransaction or loot boxification somewhere in it i mean and it's not like this is some like evil thing that faceless companies are doing it, people have been full, obviously by all counts fully embraced it they love this stuff otherwise uh-huh. they it wouldn't be around still um yeah you vote with yeah. your wallet and people have overwhelmingly showed that yeah they're they're willing to do that so um you know good on good on those business people for coming up with the idea and executing on it i guess and it kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that the cost of retail games has not really gone up in in years so developers are getting more expensive to make they're getting more expensive to make they're certainly not getting cheaper so developers are looking for okay if we can keep the cost of the game the same but we gotta get more money somehow and this is one way that they're doing it obviously yeah, I think like most of the things that we talk about on this show, I, I think we'll find that there are sort of positives and and negatives to this topic. But I, I think it's important before we get too much further into it that we define what we're talking about, that we define loot boxes, because I think there's like individual components to loot boxes that are um, that are important to the discussion that people might not necessarily think about when they think about loot boxes or they might just not even really be familiar with the term loot boxes so let's let's start with a little description of of what we're talking about so jamie when you think about loot boxes what's like the first thing that kind of jumps to your mind uh so it's an in-game reward usually like a crate or a box uh, that uh, you will click on to open up and inside will be either um you know Money, currency, cosmetic items, weapons, uh, something for you to use in the game or put towards progress towards something in the game. And most often, or in every case that I can think of, the contents of the loot box are randomized. Uh, so sometimes you open it up and it's much garbage that you don't need or don't care about. Or maybe it's a little bit of currency, but then sometimes you hit the jackpot and you're super happy because you got a sweet new gun or, you know, an awesome skin for a character that you love to play. Uh, so the idea is that every time you open one of these things, it's exciting and fun, or at least, you know, that's the hope. Yeah. And Jared, is, is there anything you want to add to that description? No, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, it, for the most, in every account that I can think of as well, that the, the contents of the box are randomized, but there are definitely uh, percentages that you don't know about for like the best item, you know, they'll tell mm-hmm. you you have a chance at getting that super rare purple item or whatever it may be. And uh, most of the time you have no idea what those chances are and you just kind of hope. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's just a few things I kind of want to add into that description of loot boxes. Though, is I think usually they're sort of accompanied with some sort of like theatricality to when you open them. Um, Thinking oh specifically about Overwatch, it's, you know, playing on the console, uh, you press and hold the X button while this, like, dial spins up. And then when it's, when it, you know, is complete, the box springs open and shoots these discs and fireworks out into the air. And yeah, the, I think Overwatch is probably, all... like, that has the best box opening animation. Hearthstone's really good, too. When you That's open the, true. The decks yeah, of cards there. 
you can like click on each card to reveal it one at a time if you want. Yeah. And then the only other thing that I just want to make sure that we're voicing is that you can typically buy these things with real world money, mm-hmm. which is um, interesting. I was listening to your podcast, Jamie, and you were talking. Um, unfortunately, I didn't write it down, so I can't remember the guest that you had on. But uh, he was saying that there's this idea of like a, a loop in games that people originally didn't think that you could break that fourth wall, that immersion, and have people still like your game. Um, and something like being able to put money into the game is sort of breaking that that immersion. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that that people are willing to do that. That that idea of that closed loop is not necessarily real. Do you remember what I'm talking? Do you remember the the guest I'm talking about? Maybe you can it elaborate a little bit. on Sounds that. like it might have been near y'all. Uh, I think it was. Yeah, I think it yeah. was. He writes and consults a lot about developing products that are habit forming and sort of how to shape and break habits. Um, so that sounds like something that, that we might have talked about. And yeah, I think people will put up with a lot uh, of immersion breaking types of things to give them stuff that they that they want. And most of the games, like the loot box uh, opening and all that sort of stuff takes place like outside of a match or outside of the game, right? So it's in the menus. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit less distracting that way and probably a little bit more, less immersion breaking. Um as opposed to, you know, finding something in the game world and then you, you stop participating in the match to change into your new skin or, or, or do anything like that. Like, that would probably not, not go over too well. I feel like, at least personally, I'm, like, ready to jump on loot boxes in for their, like, negative attributes, but I don't want to do that. I want to start out a little bit positive about, about loot boxes. So, Jared, what, um, you know, can you, what, what, good, what, what good do loot boxes do? What, how do they help? the the video game industry or help us as players i love me some good loot boxes um i've i've been playing dota 2 for years so they you know originally they had random drops you get a you get a box but you had to pay for the keys kind of like team fortress 2 same model um and you just get cool cool items like usually like cosmetic stuff and i think that's fun totally totally optional uh especially for dota 2 free to play game that's that was for a long time their only revenue stream so I was happy to support that. I have, I have many, many hours in that game. Um, so, and in Overwatch too, I think I think that's fun. You get to show off the the things that you do, and I, I really like that uh, it's a way to continue to support the game that you that you like. When you pay forty, sixty dollars for a game, and realize how many hours you get out of it, it's really uh, the the price to hour ratio for a lot of those kind of games is is pretty pretty reasonable in my opinion. So, I'm happy to support good developers and good practices. Now I, I kind of want to take a step back here. Am I the only am I the only one here that kind of feels the urge to jump on loot boxes for their negative attributes? Oh no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's I don't know why. It's it's kind of like when we had our crowdfunding discussion uh, with Christian Spicer where it's like just this overwhelming sensation to like a- attack it for the the negative things that it does. I don't know where that comes from within myself but i i i I like loot boxes i mean i play i play overwatch and i i have good experiences like what you're talking about with loot boxes where you know sometimes just on a gut level when you crack open a loot box and you get that thing you wanted it just it just feels good man i mean there's definitely the good good ways and bad ways to go about it some Mm -hmm. of the examples that we've gone over already are are pretty decent examples of of good ways to do it because people continue to buy that stuff they like it so give give the people the the choice i guess 
Now, Jamie, what other um, you know what other good things do loot boxes do for gamers that we haven't mentioned? Yeah, I you know there's a whole lot of in the psychology literature around the benefits of like customization and expression. So, you know, and this is not necessarily unique to loot boxes, you know, any game that allows you to customize your appearance, but usually, you know, you get those options through loot boxes, but, you know, being able to customize the way that you play is leads to greater motivation for people to keep playing. You know, it's let them solve problems and challenges in different ways. Um, A lot of people like to use loot and cosmetic items to sort of signal, you know, their style or what kind of character they are or what, you know, something about themselves. And there's some research that shows that, you know, they do that sort of stuff. And we do that sort of stuff in real life with the way that we dress, right? And, you know, what clothes and accessories we use, that a lot of that has very limited functional use and it's mostly used in social context. And now, uh, cosmetics play it, the same role. And you're, you're, I know you're discussing cosmetics and I think sort of generally as gamers, we've accepted that loot boxes, probably the best way to implement them is through rewarding cosmetics. Um, but yeah. what what makes loot boxes different than just sort of earning yeah. cosmetics in game or or having some in game currency where you can buy those cosmetics? Why is the yeah. the attachment from loot boxes to cosmetics important? I'd say one reason is that loot boxes sort of give you a goal to work towards, right? So take like Overwatch or uh, I haven't played Dota or Dota Two, but like Heroes of the Storm, I think works in a similar way where. You have a progression and, you know, every time that you level up, you get a loot box as a reward. Or every time you do complete a daily quest or every time that you do something that the game developers want you to do, uh, which usually involves playing the game or playing it in certain ways, um, you earn progress towards getting a loot box. And, you know, if we have that goal, setting goals increases motivation, uh, you know, to do the thing that it takes to get the Mm -hmm. goal, uh, to keep playing. So... Loot boxes are motivating in that they, you know, set a goal for you to do, and it's a pretty clear path in well-designed games of how you're going to get from where you are to that goal and what you need to do. And, you know, if you're Blizzard and you want people to try out the arcade mode in Overwatch, then you can offer them a loot box for every three matches they win in the arcade mode uh, of your game. And you're providing a goal for them to check that out and increase the player counts in those modes and, and all that sort of stuff. So that jumps out to me as the major benefit that that both players and game developers get out of loot boxes. Yeah, that's, I mean, it it definitely is positive. And in Overwatch uh, specifically, you can kind of see some of this as well. Um, You mentioned, you know, encouraging players to try out new game modes and then, you know, helping fill out those, those, um, those playlists. Uh, One of the other things that the loot boxes do really well in the, in that game specifically is they, encourage some good behavior if, if you like leave matches early you're forfeiting the experience mm-hmm. from from completing those matches and thus you know setting yourself back on trying to get to that next loot box so the loot boxes do a, a really good job of encouraging people to stay in a match even if they're you know even if they're going to lose or they think they're going to lose um, it's a good carry on a stick model where you just people will continuously have something to work towards you know in, in a game that otherwise would be over when the match is over yeah yeah, I agree. I and I, you know, that's when it's implemented well. Um, can we can we attack them now? Can we attack the boxes? <laughs> what do you hate about loot boxes? There, I'll ask the question. The, the, I mean, so personally, my main thing is the blind loot boxes. You know, you don't know what you're gonna get. Uh, sometimes they'll give you a list of potential things, 
but you don't know what the chances are most of the time we got with, uh, what, where you're going to get out of it. You know, it's, I worry about the effects that it has on uh, the younger players. You know, it's, um, it is, it, I could see it being uh, addicting for some people. Uh, it's very much, in my opinion, gambling. I, I don't know how to frame it in any other way. You're, you're putting money in something that you, hopefully you get what you want. I, I I'd much rather personally just be able to buy the cosmetic items that I want to buy, but yeah, that wouldn't be too. as profitable, you know? Um, and I, I, I also, really, I, I'm going to stop you there. Cause I, I also don't think that that would get the result that, that a lot of these developers are, are looking for the publishers are looking for. And I also don't know that it would necessarily create as rewarding of an experience for you as you might think nope. it does. Nope. I agree. Uh, um, but I, I just, the, the, the ethics, little hazy on this, I think. I agree. In China, they have defined video game loot boxes as gambling. Yeah, very, rec- very recently, right? They had to... As early this year, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like making making developers put the chances of, of what you're going to get in the yeah, descriptions. exactly. Here's an interesting quote from, from your podcast, Jamie. It was from episode 22. It was about aggression and addiction, and you were speaking with Malt Elson, who said, if gambling wasn't about money, if it was about time, maybe there wasn't money involved, I don't think we would be talking about it. I don't think the diagnosis of addiction would exist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that was, I thought that was interesting because when we look at video games and we talk about this idea of addiction, for the most part, I think what people are talking about is the time investment, someone who spends maybe too much time playing a video game. And there's a lot of these addiction loops that are built into games to get players to play more frequently or play longer. Things like like timed events, like you got a, a Christmas event on World of Warcraft and you got to log in and get your Santa Claus hat for that year or whatever it is. But loot boxes, I think, do fall into this category that can be defined as addiction using that that definition that uh, Elson proposed in that they do provide the player with an opportunity to put money into the game and not just a little bit of money, but infinite money, all the money. So I I have a question, Jamie, Um, you know, before we get, we we disparage this, you know, a lot in general in society when you see in message boards, like, Oh no, player nuns battlegrounds is in early access. And now they're releasing loot boxes, but people love it. People buy it. What do you think yeah. it is about blue boxes uh, from a from a psychological standpoint? That why do people enjoy it so much? Uh, I think it's just sort of the thrill of finding out what you're going to get, and the thrill of the unknown and being surprised, and sort of having that goal to work towards and being rewarded for putting time into the game and winning matches and and you know doing your job as a player. It's just some of the things are really great, and those are few and far between, but they feel really good when you get one right when you see that that pop up on the screen and it has the little fanfare that goes off like that just feels good it definitely seems that they put a very specific amount of time into how this all worked from the beginning you know like i'm sure they consulted people like uh, someone brought up at the beginning of this podcast was they bring in consultants to talk about like how can we maximize our retention with this or how do we how do we get people coming back and spending more money on it Player Nuns Battlegrounds. I love the game so much. I, I think that uh, they've been super transparent with the development of that game. Seems a little weird that they're selling cosmetics in an early access game. I don't really care. But buying 
those boxes and uh, unlocking them, super unsatisfying for me compared to something like Overwatch. So how is uh, it different? There's no, um, I don't know. I think I think some of the things, like I just don't think the costumes are that great. I bought like five of those uh, Gamescom Invitational crates and you just click it and then it just pops up. You know, there's no fanfare around mm-hmm. it or anything. It's just like, oh, I got uh, two pairs of white sneakers. It's not, you know, it's, and I was like, okay, that was, that was super unsatisfying. I don't think I'll be spending any more actual money, uh, buying those crates. It's, it's, it's so crazy that you bring that up because I watch, uh, several streamers who play PUBG and they talk about opening the loot boxes as being unsatisfying experiences as well. There's something Which, just, I think, I don't know, is it, is it just because it's missing any of that, you know, the sound effects the, and the animation? The fanfare? How, you think how that's crazy? It? How crazy of an idea is that? Am I that, that what simple? You're, that what you're paying for is not the items contained in the loot box, <laughs> but maybe what you're paying for is that explosion of color and sound. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like it's a very uh, base instinct. I think I was just like, mm, I, well, I think like I think it's probably both. Like you do enjoy the fanfare, and this is early access, and who knows? Maybe they'll they'll sl- turn the fanfare slider all the way to the right before they. <laughs> before they release but i think it also has a lot to do with the quality of the loot and yeah if it's just white sneakers that you can barely see much less you know other players are seeing like who cares yeah um but if it's something useful like it's something that adds to your inventory space like yeah that that's great i'd be excited about that or if it's something cool that i know other players are going to look at and be jealous of uh then i'm into that as well and that's i think a lot of the reason why uh, you know, skins and games like Overwatch or Dota or those types of games are popular because you know that other people are seeing it and maybe jealous of it. So I know you guys don't play too much Dota, but um, they, you know, Valve has been in this business for a while of, of microtransactions and cosmetics. Every year around the the international, which is the big Dota two tournament, you know, where millions and millions of dollars are on the line. They you, you can buy an in-game item which is called the compendium, and that comes with like a whole like meta game, like fantasy, like you know, like fantasy football style, like player uh, leagues that you can set up and earn all kinds of crazy stuff. But they have completely uh, they're, they're they're not trying to put up any smoke and mirrors about it. There's literally a roulette wheel that you can spin to get items. <laughs> like just it's it's, it's nice. It's, they're not trying to hide it at all, and it's it's hilarious. I think that they put that in. But, you know, that, that's what it is, really, when it comes down to it. Now, Jamie, yeah. I pulled this from one of your articles. Uh, this was from Gold Rush, Why Do We Crave Lustrous Loot? And you'd written this for Edge Magazine, and it was posted on uh, Games Radar's website. Uh, but the quote mm. says, The real key is that while dopamine neurons will fire once your brain has figured out how to predict an event, they really get active when an unexpected gush of dopamine shows up giving you an even bigger rush. Unanticipated cupcakes are the most wonderful cupcakes of all. This is how slot machines and random number generators in loot systems hook you. Rather than accepting the randomness, the reward prediction system in your brain tries doggedly to learn what in the environment preceded a jackpot. Now, you were Mm -hmm. talking in that article specifically about loot drops in the more traditional sense. Uh, Games like Destiny, where you're getting... Destiny, yeah. Engrams. Um, Does that... Diablo 3 is the other big touchstone. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, does does that argument relate to loot boxes? Is that still, um, does that? Yeah. So I've kind of been thinking about that. And that article, like you said, was written mainly talking about random loot drops from in-game, you know, mobs, uh, enemies that you would kill or you'd find a treasure chest and open it. 
And the idea was that they are hijacking sort of something that has evolved in our minds where we're trying to, um, you know, figure out how to get more of a good thing. And our brains are very good at sort of noticing patterns. And whenever something good shows up, then we try to think about, well, what preceded this and how do I get more of this and how do I figure out how to get more of it? And that works, you know, that worked great for our ancestors who were looking for, you know, berries or, or whatever other nutritionally dense food or, or something else that they wanted because there's not real true randomness in the real world. But when you're dealing with, you know, computer games or slot machines, then there are, you know, truly random events. And our brains, you know, the prediction systems in our brains want us to pay more attention to things that are good and unexpected because they want to try to figure out, like, why did we not see this coming? You know, why did I fail to predict that that this good thing was going to happen? And that's where the line, you know, unexpected cupcakes are the most wonderful cupcakes of all because... We react to those unexpected good things more strongly. And that, I think, explains a lot of player behavior around games like like Diablo or, or Destiny uh, or other in-game drops. I but, mean, that's like the entire point of Diablo, right? Yeah, it's, it's the whole to, core loop, right? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's so powerful because that is like they built an entire game around it. And yeah, when you click a, a chest after a boss fight and just, all that stuff comes out, like that's a real good feeling. Yeah, but you're getting that like immediately, right? Like, so you're you're immediately clicking on the chest, and there, there's no delay between the time that you do that behavior, exactly. or there's little delay between the time that you attack the boss and kill it, or the elite, or whatever, and you get your reward. With loot boxes, there is a delay. You know, I was talking about how they're like a goal. Like, you don't you don't get a loot box every time you play a game. So I'm not sure that it maps directly onto that. I think it probably has more to do with like goal setting and, and long-term motivation and sustained motivation than it does that immediate like operant conditioning core loop kind of thing. Uh, unless you're talking about like buying uh, loot boxes and then immediately getting to open them. And then it might be a little bit closer to that model. I gotcha. Yeah. I, I just, I read that, um, that little quote and I thought it was interesting. And then I was sort of trying to like apply that to our discussion today and thinking about like how, how they, might relate to one another yeah i mean it's it still is a random reward right and random giving people what they want at random intervals as opposed to every time they do something that you want them to do you know across almost every context in psychology like that's the better way to motivate people it's the better way to get people to learn it's a better way to get people to change their behavior so the randomness of it definitely is uh part of it and it's why they're so interesting to us and uh, compelling. Now, now, maybe this isn't exactly explicitly tied to just loot boxes, but in this context, like, what do you guys think the reason is for our sometimes games uh, obfuscate the true cost of some of this stuff behind you have to first, you know, buy their currency and then you can buy the mm-hmm. loot box. Um, I hate that. What What's with that? What do you think about that? Because it makes you lose track of how much you've spent and there's... Mm-hmm. You don't have to go very far in the consumer psychology literature to find studies on people using credit cards as opposed to cash to buy things. When they use credit cards, the the time between when they get something and the time between when they have to pay for it, when they pay the credit card bill, is a lot longer than when you pay for cash. And so you lose track, you you know, you don't keep track, and it ends up making you spend more money when you use a credit card. 
It's hard for me to put a good spin on that at all. I honestly think that it's just like the shadiest practice. Yeah, and I I typically refuse to engage with games that make me buy purple diamonds or gold coins or whatever it is in order to to buy their stuff. If I can't directly just put my credit card number into the system or or use prepaid credit or, or gift cards or whatever and get it on a dollar for dollar or whatever your local currency is, basis then i check out I, I i won't engage with that part of the game now i kind of want to talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the uh in the room which is and we're gonna talk about donkey kong cool <laughs> <laughs> yes donkey kong uh no let's <laughs> let's talk about terrible gambling addiction if you if you've ever read his autobiography yeah <laughs> <laughs> tore his home apart oh i i I, I don't even want to say the name of the game. Let's talk about Middle Earth Shadow of War and uh, the recent news uh, that that Shadow game is... Shadow of Wardor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that they are now going to be including loot boxes in a single-player game. <laughs> so you guys want to hear something um, terribly, terribly ironic, I guess? Um, I, I subs- I, we're not supported by uh, Loot Crate, but I'm going to bring them up because I, I have a Loot Crate gaming subscription. I think it's, uh, I think it's fun. Um, and this month they sent me a Shadow of Mordor t-shirt. <laughs> so there's some, there's some kind of... Uh, it's very meta. Yeah. Are you wearing choice. it right now? I'm not. Oh. No. Are, you wearing, are you wearing clothes? <laughs> I wish I wasn't, actually. It's so hot. <laughs> but, Define uh, clothes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this game, right? It's a single-player game. And uh, the first game, it's a sequel to a, a fairly successful first game that came out mm-hmm. okay so so I, i'm just gonna say i don't know what the what the big problem with this is i know a lot of people when this news was announced were very upset that they were going to be including loot boxes in a single player game and to me that sound that seems like like a weird distinction to make to say like i'm okay with having loot boxes in my multiplayer games but mm-hmm. but once it makes that jump into single player games there's this like weird thing that happens in people's minds where it's like, no, 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 no. Now you're trying to take advantage of me. Well, I, I think, th- I think the, the, the big thing that I just want to get out of the way is there's misunderstanding that if they did this, it means that they took things out of the game to get That's here. the key. Yeah. And I yeah. just don't, I don't think that's honestly the case most of the time in any of these. But um, I can see if that's really what you believe that that would be upsetting. Yeah, my my reaction to this news is just kind of it amounted to mild disappointment at the most, I guess. You know, I I would rather they didn't have it in there. I thought the first game was almost perfect for what it was. Uh, Certainly a really good game and it didn't have that sort of stuff in it. And I guess the uh, the main question is that, well, if am I going to be able to get these same things in the game without paying extra money for it? you know, just by completing quests or progression within the game. And it sounds like you can. I think they came out and explicitly said that that would be the case. Um, this is just something to do if you want to accelerate or you really want to get a particular orc in your army or, yeah. or, or, or at least, you know, roll the dice and try to try to get them. Um, but if they so. don't, if it doesn't affect the game design and the game experience that I'm going to have, if I don't engage in that sort of stuff, then I'm fine with it. I can ignore it. Uh, and, and I don't think it's that big a deal. Okay, so this is... So, sorry, go ahead, Jared. No, I just think people are worried because this is a Warner Brothers game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a Rock... pu- Warner Brother published. Published. 
who's developed by monolith monolith Mon- yeah monolith. yeah okay yeah i just i don't know like the warner brothers just as a company is having has had some issues with their with game releases over the years um just buggy stuff coming out and stuff not working. So I think people are rightfully concerned to see how it's going to pan out, but I'm not, you know, I'm not up in arms about it. Yeah. yeah I'm, so I'm going to buy so, the game for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, of, of, of course <laughs> <laughs> the first game was genius. Yeah. No. Okay. So maybe I should take a step back and, and maybe more clearly describe my feelings about this. Um, the idea of a loot box in a single player game versus a multiplayer game doesn't on its face bother me any more than than having it in a multiplayer game. I think all the same uh, gripes that I have with uh, loot boxes and multiplayer games apply to single player games. Now this game, Shadow of, of War, is going to have loot boxes that provide items that can actually sort of accelerate your progress through the game. Things like weapons and armor, uh, XP bonuses and and things like that that do actually affect gameplay and that's where my problem with this practice um, with this like specifically with this game comes in but you know what the best Um, part is you don't have to engage with that you you can totally ignore that you don't need it it's it's not like you're gonna like fall behind on the leaderboards you know it's that's your choice I guess that's true so here here's some of of my problems with it, though, um, I'm actually going to start out by reading a, a, another quote. I'm just full of quotes in this episode, but this is from Jim Sterling. Um, he has a YouTube channel called The Jimquisition. Um, he says, "Consider this: if you're paying to skip stuff, it implies the stuff isn't worth playing. And if it isn't worth playing, why is it in the game to begin with? In fact, by adding an explicit value to the time saved, you're suggesting the time spent is worth less than nothing." I think that's interesting because you the, the the game developer says like oh don't worry the stuff that's in the loot boxes you can still get by playing the game but then what's the point of the loot boxes or conversely yeah. what's the point of having the experience of playing the game if you can get it out of a loot box it, it creates this weird situation where one of those things you're saying has no value if well, they I think balance it, the game in a way where you need that stuff, otherwise it's not fun, then yeah, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, that's my main concern is that if you need that stuff uh, to progress in the game or to do well in the game, and then you have to do a bunch of unfun stuff to get it or pay for it through a loot box, then that's a problem. But I think everybody's value of their time is different uh, and, and changes over time as well. You know, Back when I was in college and grad school, I had a lot more time than I do now to play games. And if I can cut out an entire grindy part of a game that, uh, you know, with, with a couple of dollars or whatever, then that might be fine for me or for somebody else in that kind of situation. That's how they get I think you. The, the bigger question is like, well, why is that grindy part of the game in there in the yes, first place? And that's, it's not that any was, fun. <laughs> yeah. And that was, and that was Jim's point in that thing. Yeah. It's like, if, if, if you're describing a portion of the game as grinding, then that implies that you're doing it out of some sort of obligation and not, necessarily having um not having fun with it in that moment i kind of want to skip ahead a little bit i know we jump we normally sort of save our emails towards the end but i wanted to bring this one up this comes to us from chester copperpot on facebook he says how exactly would balance work in regards to single player would that be similar to difficulty in regards to the computer's advantage over the player i think that this is actually a good time to bring this this up because 
I recently I recently played uh, Bloodborne, a single player game, and I think the idea of balance is important to that game. Uh, I know we're not talking about balance here, but bear with me. I'll bring it back around. The progression that they've built into that game matches the difficulty level of the enemies that you're encountering and your own personal ability to play that game increases at a rate that seems, at least from my experience, seemed pretty in line with where they needed me to be. Something like a loot box, like being able to get your hands on a better on better weapons or better armor. You know, like if you drop a thousand dollars into loot boxes and your character has all the gear from the quote unquote end game, that like mm. drastically throws off the balance of that game. It throws off the your experience as the player. Um, in Bloodborne, there's these things called chalice dungeons that are sort of these optional dungeons you can go do uh, to get additional gear and level up a little bit more. And I, um, kind of towards the latter part of that game, spent some time in those dungeons. And when I returned to the game, my character was kind of leveled up more than he should have been for that por- that part of the game. And I felt a piece of the game was missing. Mm. I was I was too powerful for the the areas I was in. And that that balance was thrown off. So that's one of my other fears for this is is that yeah. I I mean if I get this game I will not be engaging with the loot boxes in it. I'll say that right now. I will not yeah. be buying the loot boxes for this game. That's part so of I my give you, I I can give you another example that that hinges not on loot box but a pre order bonus. Um, so the game uh, Prey by Arcane uh, mm-hmm. Studios. Did you guys play that? It's on my backlog, but I, okay. Yeah. So if you, uh, so I, I pre-ordered the game. I, I like ordered it like the night before it unlocked on Steam. And for doing that, I got access to the shotgun like way, way earlier oh, yeah. than you would normally get it in the game. And there's a certain enemy type to which the shotgun is a hard counter. But the sort of the progression, the difficulty curve of the game has you encountering them before you would normally get the shotgun. So everybody else sort of had this challenge you know, it's like, oh, how do I deal with these enemies? You know, I got to use the glue gun and then I got to like run away and hide. And it was a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. I just walked right up to him and blasted him with a shotgun <laughs> like once and it killed him Im- immediately. So like that whole aspect of the game was missing for me mm-hmm. and everybody else who pre-ordered the game uh, because we had some uh, extra powerful weaponry a lot earlier in the game than, than the game was designed for. I think you could objectively look at it and say, the game was not designed to have you have that shotgun that early on. It was some marketing person putting together, you know, pre-order uh, deals that kind of ruined that for me. Yeah, you're cheating yourself out of that that experience. And you yeah, could it, say, like, Jamie, just don't hit two on the keyboard to switch to the shotgun ever <laughs> <laughs> until mm-hmm. you find it normally. But I'm not going to do that. I totally used it every opportunity I had. Uh, I don't have that kind of self-control. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've talked about this back in our difficulty settings episode in that you know there's there's certain things that can be designed into a game that fracture players experiences of the game it 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 creates a schism in the way that we discuss that that game so for you i mean you even it sounded like just now said you had a negative experience with those parts of the game being um imbalanced in your favor mildly negative but yeah and i i i see that as a problem i i wonder if we're going to see people who play shadow of war and are publicly saying the game is no fun. It's too easy. And then we find out that they've spent a bunch of money on loot boxes. Or maybe they even just got super lucky on loot lucky, boxes. Lucky. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they just earned loot boxes the old-fashioned way in that game and happened to just get, you know, the top-tier items. I mean, 
we're sort of speaking from speculation because maybe the loot boxes are built in a way that you can't just do that. Like maybe they're sort of tied to your character's level in some way that it prevents mm-hmm. you from getting top tier items right away. That might be that might end up being the case, but it's scary for this for this game. I just I wish it was just cosmetics. I just wish it was cosmetics. Uh, in a similar vein, I when Overwatch first came out, I played it and it's a fun game just by itself. And um, so I was like, oh, sure, I'm going to buy like 10 loot boxes. And I did that and I opened them all and I was like, OK, that was reasonably satisfying. But then um, I kind of lost a little bit of urge to keep playing the game, <laughs> like earning earning that. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not really working because, you know, you look forward to leveling up and getting your next loot box and uh, I already done. I already did a bunch of that and got what I needed out of it just by, you know, taking that shortcut of just buying them outright. And uh, I was like, oh well, now I, I feel like I cheated myself out of uh, that that, that carrot on the stick thing again. You know, uh, maybe I'm just weird because I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed that experience and uh, it took a little bit of it away from me. And the answer to that is to have those special events and keep cranking out the new skins. So exactly. It's the summer games or the Chinese New Year or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. there's new stuff for you to buy. Or or earn. Now we, we we have spent a lot of uh, time and energy discussing the sort of addictive side of loot boxes. Again, I don't know if if addiction is the right term to use for these, but the it's not. What what would be a better term in your <laughs> mind? Just yeah. So yeah, whenever somebody says like, "Oh, this game is addicting," or "This mechanic is addicting," um, my ears burn a little bit because. Psychologists use the word addicting and addiction in very specific clinical terms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and they're and they're different from the way that other people use them or the way that psychologists use them when they're talking about something else. And to say that somebody is addicted to something, you know, there are usually like very specific criteria that the person has to meet before it's a pathological addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, and they like a, a psychologist would check off like X of Y, you know, they have to meet like so many of these different criteria where it like interferes with their life and they can't think about anything else and they experience withdrawal symptoms and those types of things. And when we talk about like, oh, loot boxes and Overwatch or Dota 2 are super addictive, like we're not talking about behavior that rises to that level or, or yeah, experiences like that rises addiction. to that level. Right. Um, so I always just kind of want to throw that out there because yeah, it's in totally a way fair. it in a way it lessens people who do have actual pathological addictions mm-hmm. to things like gambling or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is that it's not fair to put people who are really into video games into those types of buckets unless they truly do meet those criteria and there's a lot of research that says like that's pretty rare that yeah. that, that happens uh, it's really unusual is there is there better phrasing that i could use in yeah, this what, podcast what do we call and in the future thing? Yeah, I I mean, it's compelling, it's engrossing. A lot of those are just synonyms for addiction, but um, I I don't, you know, as long as you sort of put that disclaimer out there that, you know, this is not quite the same thing, or or it's not, it's much more rare when it is that same level of addiction, of actual addiction. Whenever I uh, whenever I bring up the word addiction in a in an episode, I'm just gonna always refer them to the uh, whatever <laughs> like the the 55 minute mark of this episode. <laughs> just like everything else in, in this podcast, we're like we really don't know what we're talking about, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. we're doing our best. We said that in episode one. Hopefully, we made that abundantly clear <laughs> that we know nothing. Yeah, and a lot of people that study addiction also say like, well, you know video games are like the world's most popular entertainment or one of them anyway. And to sort of 
paint that many people with this brush of, you know, they're addicted to, to this type of game is not necessarily fair to all of those people and, and the hobby in general. I'm usually the last one to be hyperbolic about some of this stuff. And I'm not the one to cry when someone think of the children. But do you think <laughs> from from your experience and your studies, like, are there do you think there are implications to, you know, long term exposure to this for, for kids of certain ages? I don't know of any research that has answered that question convincingly uh, to say that what long term effects that games have. And usually those types of research are, are couched around the effects of violent media and the effects of, you know, addiction or, or um, what's the term that gets played like problematic use that maybe there's like your better term. Mm, uh, a lot yeah. of times researchers will refer to like problematic game use or problematic, you know, o- overspending, you know, spending too much time on games to the point where it interferes with other responsibilities and other life experiences. Um, so yeah, what, what was in, the question? In, 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 I mean, in your opinion, as a psychologist, do you, do you think it's exploitative for kids to be this to be marketed towards kids in this way? I don't think so. Most kids don't have credit cards, so that they could just buy the loot boxes and and uh, gamble in that way. Uh, I think there are safeguards put up, and if there aren't, or if the kids steal, you know, dad's credit card, then that's obviously a problem that that needs to be deal dealt with. I wouldn't say it rises to the level of exploitation, no. But at the same time, I think the gaming industry needs to keep its its wits about it and pay attention to this sort of stuff and engage in some self-monitoring and self-regulation so that the government doesn't feel like it has to step in uh, like it has threatened to do in the past and like it has done in other countries. Yeah. I kind of wanted to uh, like move us a, a little bit away from that discussion of uh, of addiction or problematic gaming cuz I for me I think the biggest problem with loot boxes is that they just like don't thematically make sense in games. And I I've, I've mentioned that idea of like of theme in video games before. Um yeah, I think when I'm playing a game like uh like Destiny and I and I defeat a boss and I get uh some armor from it there's like like i can make the association between like okay i defeated an enemy and i got the armor from it but there's something that's like kind of abstract about loot boxes the way that they're typically implemented in games where it's like okay now i gotta go back out to the menu system and i got this box that has nothing to do with the story or the theme of this game or anything and i open it i get random items that that you know, like, where do they come from? How does this make any sense within this world? Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, that's probably my biggest gripe with loot boxes. Like, I could I could imagine a game, like maybe a, a, some sort of pirating game where you get, uh, you know, you, you get a, a treasure chest. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now now your loot box has a place thematically in this world. and I You can, just made I can... me really worried for Sea of Thieves. <laughs> That game looks awesome. (laughs) But is that, am I making sense? Like I, I, in that context, it makes, it makes sense. Is the issue, is the issue that it's breaking the immersion of the game, that it's pulling you out of the game and realize, making you realize like, oh yeah, I'm playing a video game. Yeah. Partly. I part, there's, there's partly that there's the part of it that makes me realize like, oh, they're, they're asking me for money, you know? So like, that's, Mm. I think, I think it is kind of what you're talking about. It's like breaking that, that immersion for me where 
I mean, I, I can understand and appreciate all the positive aspects of loot boxes, but for me, there's just, there's something about it. It's like one step too far removed from what's going on in the game for me to, to really get behind it 100%. Listen, Steve, if I want the Doritos Locos Taco skin for my Deus Ex sniper rifle, then that should be my choice, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose there is that. And that's the thing. It's like these things aren't going to go anywhere because people overwhelmingly support it. You know, if if you don't like it, just don't engage with it. You know, I think that's I think that's the main thing. It's it's only here because, you know, the free markets spoke and here we are. Yeah. And this might be sort of a good place for us to kind of wrap up our discussion. Typically, towards the end, I like to ask what we want to see in the future from developers and publishers. So I'll, I'll pitch it to you first, Jamie. What what would you like to see? Uh, developers or publishers do differently in the future, if anything, in regards to loot boxes? Yeah, specifically about loot boxes. Um, I think a little bit of wiggle room is welcome. Um, you think about the way that like Overwatch does its loot boxes, and I've, I've kind of burned out on that game because I kept not being able to get the stuff that I wanted, and you compare that to the way that Heroes of the Storm, um, the MOBA from Blizzard, does theirs and they like let you spend resources to re-roll a loot box for example that's cool. <clears throat> um sometimes they give you more much more frequently than overwatch does they'll give you special loot boxes that are guaranteed to contain an epic item or a legendary item you know that are that is one level of rarity higher um you get those for doing like big quests and big accomplishments and it's like there okay i know that if i get four things one of them is not going to be junk at least uh, hmm. Maybe a, du- a duplicate of something I already have, but that's a separate problem. Yeah. Um, so like a little bit of wiggle room there. If it's just sort of this all or nothing, um, the random number generator can mean that you have just a string of disappointments that turns you off of the game entirely at some point. I got gotcha. you. Jared, how about you? What would you like to see done differently in the future? Well, Steam is already kind of doing this with their community marketplace where in a lot of games you, you know, you, where you'd have a loot box, you can resell it to other people. I think that is a pretty good model because I sometimes I just want a certain thing. So if you know someone gets lucky and wants to sell it, uh, I'm happy to pay for that specific item. And I, th- I think that's that's a cool way to do it. Now they're kind of doing things where if you open a loot box, some of that stuff is locked and you can't sell it for a few days or weeks or months. Mm-hmm. And that feels a little scummy, but you know, it's, I, I think transparency is also important. I, I like the idea of knowing my chances of getting a certain item, even if it's a low chance, I would like to see that. Uh, so can I make sure it's not I, rigged? Can I jump in with one quick comment and a shameless plug? Of course. Oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> so um, that idea of being able to sell uh, items that you get out of loot boxes or out of the game. Otherwise um, there's like an extended part of the, one of the chapters I wrote in my book about loot drops talks about like the Diablo three auction house. Oh yeah. And, and that concept of being able to like, okay, I, now I don't have to go through a loot box to get what I want. I can go to the, the real money auction house or the gold auction house and sort of the story of how blizzard implemented that looked at that and said, no, this is messing with like what makes our game great. Like that, that core loop. And then undid that, um, that change, you know, got rid of, the auction houses. I think those are items really... that directly affected your experience while playing the game. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Not just cosmetics or they were, they were actual items, but I think that was really interesting how listening to what players want can not necessarily be what's best for the game. Uh, yeah, sometimes absolutely. it obviously is, but sometimes it's not. And oh, yeah. Blizzard, 
sort of were really brave about getting rid of this thing that people ostensibly liked and that generated a lot of revenue for them, right? Because they got cuts of the real money auction house, uh, but they got rid of yeah. it because they thought they made a ga- if they thought it made the game worse. Yeah, they got rid of it and then they increased the drop rate of of rare items. Yeah, yeah. So, like that made the game so much better because I barely touched it after that. I was like, this is not. This something's missing here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I played I, Diablo 3 as recently as like three weeks ago with the Necromancer pack. It's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's good. I, yeah, I, like, I really like the way that Blizzard handles community feedback and, and sometimes doesn't necessarily just do what the community says. They seem really willing to stick to their guns when it's important to them and bend when, when something is, is not working or not feeling right for them. Yeah. What I want to see uh, done in the future uh, directly ties more to my biggest complaint about loot boxes, which is they just—they just don't thematically seem to fit into every single game that they're shoehorned into. It really like bugs see, you, huh? I mean, we're we're talking about video games, and at the end of the day, none of this stuff really bugs me a whole lot. <laughs> but I I would like to see sort of more creative uh, implementations of those devices. You know, See, if, I, if the you're, goal, you're if, saying this, and now like I'm really worried about a premium island for Sea of Thieves or something crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I just kind of, I mean, I just kind of threw out the treasure chest uh, analogy because that's like sort of a simple one that I can think of off the top of my head of like, okay, in a, in a pirate game, a treasure chest loot box thematically makes sense, but I think it's it's more difficult to come up with an i a, a way like let's use Overwatch as an example. Like thematically, what could they do in Overwatch that makes sense for like, how does Winston get new clothes in Overwatch? <laughs> and, you know, yeah. that that's difficult to come and up. Why with. are they random? <laughs> you yeah. know, if somebody was just sending him a provision box or like mm-hmm. equipment, like, why did you send me a skin for so and so? Yeah. You know, yeah. McCree in the, in the most recent <laughs> summer pack, someone forgot to send him a shirt. <laughs> I, <laughs> That'd it, be really but, interesting. You know, so it's, it's, it's hard to do like it, it, in these like little thought experiments, it's it's hard to come up with like thematic reasons for why these things exist. But I don't think that that should free developers from having to try to to do that thing. And maybe they are. Maybe there are. I mean, Blizzard's a huge company, and they've got it. You know, extremely intelligent people working there. Maybe they are trying to come up with these things, and it's just more difficult than I'm sort of making it sound on my on my podcast. But I, I would I would prefer to see developers and publishers try to come up with more uh creative ways to get these mechanics into their games besides just like loot boxes like Fortnite. uh yeah so it's, it's a pinata and when you get out of the pinata oh you get like materials to help you build a base well this doesn't make any sense <laughs> like, make, make them earn that experience yeah. right yeah all right well i think that's a good place for us to kind of wrap up our discussion about loot boxes why don't we go ahead and move on to some of our community feedback? Uh, if you have any questions or comments about loot boxes or any of our previous topics, you can send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like us to talk about, send those along as well. Jared, what do we got? We got a lot of feedback from our friend uh, Chester Copperpot on Facebook. We kind of went over his first one earlier, but um, in regards to game balance, he mentions... From what I've seen, Dead by Daylight does balance in an interesting way. The victims are faster and create barriers that only the killer can attack. Uh, I mean, unless the point of the game is to see how long someone can hold on before they lose, balance is pretty important. Everyone wants a chance to win. 
Yeah, balance in single player games, I think, is is as important as it is in multiplayer games. But the the way that you balance it is different. Like you want your your player to feel overpowered while also feeling imperiled at the same time, and that's like that's hard to that's a hard balance to strike for uh, for single player games. So uh, Sean on Facebook, he says, uh, "Good episode, guys." He's talking about our balance episode again. Very good topic and a fun guest. Game balance is a super difficult topic. It can lean one way or the other, but hopefully we will be in the same place when it's where we started. So thank you, Sean. Thank you for writing that. It, uh, it's a tricky thing to talk about. It's not really a tangible thing like loot boxes. So, but I think we... And in, this, and in his comment here, he says, hopefully it ends at the same place it started. I think what, he, what he's talking about is games that are um, sort of rebalanced to shake up the meta. Um, sure as 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 like you know if you know is a game necessarily balanced when the the primary way that people play it is you know the the triple tank meta in overwatch well maybe that's maybe you could consider that balanced but yeah when they make the the changes to the way roadhog's hook works and the way that diva's defense matrix works and those kinds of things and then the meta changes up hopefully you're, you still end up with a game that's fun i think that's what he's what he's talking about right here yeah it's it's a it's a tough thing to do you know when we talked we talked about dota having 112 characters and just bringing in one new ability or a new concept that's just it can throw everything out of whack we got another message from rocky on facebook he says i can only speak to balance in a mid kill time shooter like destiny because that's all i've played since i've got a ps4 i think the sweet spot for balance in competitive pvp is different loadouts being balanced enough to see variety but abilities and perks can be combined to create unique playstyles that are designed by your own strategy and skill. I used Blink for three months straight before I started understanding its value. It had so many downsides, I couldn't understand why anyone would run it. But I stuck with it, and now I love Blink. I think the true power of some abilities and perks needs to be hidden under tons of work and creativity. And that's that's a cool message because, you know, it's up to the player to find the true use for something and be creative with it. And I like that idea other than people just being, you know, the developers jumping at people's comments like this is imbalanced or this is pointless and um, letting players find a creative solution. Yeah. And we didn't really talk about this too much. We mentioned it in our balance episode, but we had talked briefly about the idea of is a player's skill a component of balance? Like, is, are there ways to balance for player skill? And I, I think that this is one of the things that um, that Blizzard runs runs into with Overwatch is that they have characters that are um, that are balanced really well for uh, high level play, but are are not very well balanced at you know the level of play that I engage in down in the <laughs> down in the dumpster tier. <laughs> um, I think about a character like Genji who requires a lot of who who is a very very strong character in the right hands. And mm-hmm. can be a detriment to your team if the person who's picked Genji is not good at playing him, because it's it's not that character's not balanced to be played by silver and gold players. You know, like it requires too much dexterity and too much awareness for people who are only at sort of a, a gold level understanding of that game. I wonder how much thought in the development process because it takes a very specific and confident developer to take all that community feedback, like a thing about like, like blink or something 
and just be like, no, you guys just haven't found the right way to use it yet. Yeah. <laughs> like to be able to confidently say that or just kind of hoping, you know, the, the community finds a way to use that ability that uh, maybe you didn't think of in a way that that's a bit more creative. Yeah. Now, Jamie, I know you play you played uh, Destiny and you, you played a lot of Overwatch. Do you have any mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on this? No, it's true. There's a lot of characters that when you look at like Twitch streams or, or uh, tournaments and, you know, pro gamers using them, it's. I can do amazing thing with McCree's and they can just shut down people that I've never seen happen in quick match and that I've certainly never uh, pulled off. And I think Blizzard is um, like other developers, a few other developers, they're good about like, okay, let's just give it time and time to breathe and let's see what the data say about the win rates, you know, with these different characters and find out what synergies and things people are figuring out what to do on what maps and and they have like the public test realms the ptrs where they can gather advanced data on that sort of stuff mm-hmm. so it's nice to have uh, that big an operation when you've got it yeah and we actually we got a lot of really great feedback um some good discussions happening on our twitter and on our our facebook so yeah if you uh if you're not following us on twitter uh definitely do that because there was uh, some really good back and forth on the discussion of balance. I was really happy to see that from uh, from the community. And we we also linked and tweet about um, indie projects and people working on really cool things. So it's not us just uh, yelling at you to listen to our podcast. Yeah. And that's going to do it for uh, listener emails. Again, you can send your own emails to us at podcast at GB feature. Thank you to everyone that that wrote in. Um, we had yeah, several we had several messages that we just don't have time to get into but but please keep sending those along and we're going to try to get through as many as we can and uh, anything we don't get to we'll kind of hold on to for the future and try to get into it later that's going to do it for this episode but uh before we get out of here i want to thank our guest dr jamie madigan jamie thank you so much for uh for agreeing to help us out this has been an amazing discussion where can people find your work and how can they keep up with you yeah hey it was a lot of fun thanks for the invitation to come on i always enjoy uh talking shop talking to other gamers uh if you want to find out more about psychology of games then psychologyofgames.com is a pretty good place to go uh, that's the website there's literally hundreds of articles that i've written over the years there uh, you can find out how to uh, check out and subscribe to the podcast that i put out where i talk to an expert on the psychology of video games about a specific topic each episode you can find out how to follow me on twitter i'm at jamie madigan there's facebook there's patreon there's all kinds of good stuff but psychologygames.com will give you easy to find and easy to use links for all of that. If you're if you're listening to this podcast and you found like this conversation even remotely interesting, definitely <laughs> definitely go check out uh, the website and listen to his podcast cuz he's got a lot of really amazing content on there. Um, it's a pretty I, nuanced subject, so yeah, it's hard to mm-hmm. get everything in an hour-long podcast, so I <laughs> yeah. I encourage people to look it up. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks. And I I've, I've been having a, a a blast listening to your podcast and getting all caught up on on everything there. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. Lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. It really does mean the world to us that you're spending your time with us. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Please just don't don't be a dick about it. Here, here. <laughs> All right, thank Thanks, you so Jamie. much, guys. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Yeah, no problem. Yeah.